0: Okay, this is the Theology 3 class. And uh, glad you guys could all brave the extreme cold to be here. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for keeping these folks safe who have driven in this morning and pray that you'll continue to keep us safe. Any of those who are still driving or anybody who's about to go home uh, later today, uh, thank you for all the first responders and essential personnel who are out and about no matter what the weather does, whether it's doctors and nurses and paramedics, firefighters, and on and on and on. Um, thank you for all the snow plow people who are out and about. Um, it's just a big blessing uh, that they help take care of the roads so we can be here. Pray that we wouldn't take today for granted Pray that uh, we would uh, really set our hearts about studying your word and submitting to your word and just drinking in the glory of all that you have done, all the things you have created and all your purposes in behind everything. And I just pray that we would just come away with a great um, things to give thanks and praises for when we gather together to sing. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, Kyle Crawl uh, started us off last Sunday on angelology, and he was planning on starting off this morning of uh, answering a couple questions, a couple questions that you guys had um, about angels and and whatnot. Um, so he's sick, and <laughs> he's not going to be able to be here today, so he was really bummed. But he told me what those questions are, and uh, I can answer some of them. So I hope the people who asked them are here, and uh, if they're not, I uh, just know that you guys will still be blessed by them. But one of the questions was, do angels take on a uh, physical body? Or, you know, do, Can they? And the short answer is yes. Question mark? Um, And the reason why I say that is uh, because of some scripture passages. So, um, one view would be, you know, Genesis chapter 6, in verses 1 through 3. If you want, you can turn there. I'll read it to you, though. Uh, It says, "...when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose." Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now there's three views of who's being talked about in this passage, particularly the sons of God. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they came and took them as their wives, and um, cohabitated with them, right, and had relations with them. And one view is uh, to see these as, I'll just tell you the views real quick. There's the view that this is, um, the sons of God are um, the Sethites, so people are the descendants of the son of Seth, uh, you know, one of the sons of uh, Adam and Eve. And the other one uh, are the descendants of Canaanites, and that they cohabitated together. And the other view is that the sons of God are rulers Uh, during that time period that were more like despots. They were just very wicked, very cruel rulers. Um, And then the other view is that they're fallen angels. And the, the hard thing about it is that the term sons of God is used in other places in the Old Testament to refer to all three of those people. And so that's why there's some interpretational differences about what it can mean. There's pros and cons to every kind of view. But if you take the view that it is angels, then you have to kind of say, okay, well how do angels marry you know women? And I guess you maybe they possess, right? Cuz we're talking about fallen angels, we're talking about demons, so they possess a, a male body and and you know then cohabitate. You know, something like that. As possible, I don't think it's personally the strongest interpretation. That's not what I would base my answer on the question. Anyways, I would go to passages like Genesis chapter eighteen, and I think this is a stronger uh, passage to say yes to the question. Um, so Genesis chapter 18, if you want to turn there, this is where Abraham entertains three guests, one of them being uh, uh, Christophany, Jesus. Um, but in Genesis chapter 18, verses starting in verse 1, "...and the Lord appeared to him." So that's Yahweh, right? Lord, all caps. "...and Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him." When he saw them, he ran from the tent of the door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, there's three, right? So one of them is Yahweh, and the other two, how? how those are angels. Or how do you know? Well, later we find out those two split off, and they go to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And they interact with Lot, and we find out in those texts that they're angels. Uh, the angels struck the people of Sodom and Gomorrah blind, right, when they were trying to uh, hurt um, them and, and Sodom and his family. Or, Lot and his family, sorry. Um, so you have two accompanying angels, but then it's in Genesis eighteen three. it says, and, the Lord, and, and said, O Lord, this is Abraham talking, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now just quick, you know, just kind of biblical interpretational thing there. Lord, in verse 3, is not all uppercase, so that is not Yahweh. If it's uppercase, all uppercase in your Bible, it's referring to the uh, name of God Yahweh. If it's lowercase, it's the ter- Hebrew term Adonai, which means master. Okay, still, it's, a, it's a, a title of, you know, superiority and stuff, but it's not God's name. So just so when you're reading your Bible, um, it says, Oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Verse 6, and Abraham went quickly into the tent, right? So he talks to his wife, and they prepare all this stuff, curds, milk, to kill the calf. Um, And it says in verse 8, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So based on all those descriptions... Angels apparently took on a body. They don't usually have a body, right? They're spiritual beings. But in this moment, I would call it, a what I've seen in another, in another book, an angelophony. Right? If, if Jesus appears in the Old Testament in certain ways and forms, like He does here, we call that a Christophony. Another part call this an angelophony, a moment where they took on some kind of a body, and they had feet to wash, right? He wasn't going to wash their feet. He prepared food, and they are like, yeah, okay. And then they ate it. Uh, by all appearances to Abraham, they were... Human in appearance. So, uh, that, that would be, that's why I say yes. I mean, they must have had something to eat it, and Abraham wasn't like, you guys look weird. They must have just looked like normal humans in that moment. So while, while angels don't normally have bodies, apparently they can take on that form at certain times. Another funny thing is just like in Acts chapter 1, verse 10, uh, when angels appeared to the disciples after Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, the it says, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. I just think it's interesting that angels have Clothing on. They're spiritual beings, but when they appear in a way that men can see, they could say, like, oh, you got clothes on. So that kind of makes me think when they appear, they kind of take a bodily appearance. So, um, it, angels are described in Matthew 28:3, his, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Again, it's just kind of talking, there's something about clothing going on there. So, that's just kind of how I would answer the question: do angels take on a physical body? They, they apparently can. So uh, another question was, can angels eat? And again, I think this Genesis 18 kind of answers that. Apparently they can. Uh, they, don't, they don't need to, but in that moment with Abraham, they did. Um, the, the third question was, uh, is there a definite article in the Hebrew, or you can even ask about the Greek language as well, that would particularly help you identify uh, in your Bible when the angel of the Lord is being talked about, and it's that special, it's it's Jesus. Like, how do I know when the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus, when it's the angel of the Lord? And in the Hebrew and in Greek, yes, there is a definite article that you would translate the, um, but the interesting thing is it's not always used like we use it, Uh, so often you don't see it. So a lot of times in the Old Testament, when it says the angel of the Lord, there's not a definite article. And same thing in the Greek. There's not always. Um, Like in the Greek, it's like angel of God is all it says. A angel of God. And so, just because there's not a definite article when you're translating in the languages doesn't mean there's no definiteness to it. A lot of times the nouns, like proper nouns, if you're talking about Yahweh or something like that, if it's in connection, there is an inferred definiteness already there, and you you would translate it that way because it's embedded in the noun. Um... So then the question still remains, how do I know? If I'm reading my Old Testament and I come across angel of the Lord, how do I know it's Jesus? This time it's Jesus. Uh, A couple of ways you can know it. You can know it's Jesus if his name is used interchangeably with God's. That's usually a pretty good clue, right? Oh, this guy's got... And there's passages in the scripture that you see that. Um, When the angel of Yahweh makes promises... So turn to Genesis 16. uh, Here we have the angel of the Lord talking to Hagar... And you see a lot of these uh, in this passage, when the angel of, Yah- of Yahweh of the Lord makes promises that only God can make. So uh, Genesis sixteen verse ten, uh, the angel of the Lord also said to her, "I," and he says, "I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude." He doesn't say God, right? He's not just this messenger saying God will. He God is promising to do this, and he's saying, "I'm going to do this." So, making a promise that only God can do. Uh, Yahweh's name was in the angel of Yahweh. So, that would be from like Exodus chapter 23. If you want, you can turn there. Otherwise, I'll just read it to you here. Exodus 23. Verses twenty through twenty-one. Behold, I send an angel. Is God talking to the Israelites? Before, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. So again, there's a reference to Christ um, being uh, the, Yah- the uh, angel of the Lord. Uh, people worshipped the angel of Yahweh. So if you're in a passage like Genesis chapter 22, it happens in the book of Judges, where people worship the angel. Usually when people worship uh, just an angel, they're like, whoa, 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 stop it, knock it off, get off your knees. I'm like you, I'm a servant. All right, you see that in Revelation But in these instances, in the book of Judges, like chapter 6 and Genesis 22, the angel of Yahweh's worship, they offer sacrifice to him, and he's like, cool, yeah, do it. It's Jesus. Um, The... Another way you can know is, um, so an example would be Malachi chapter 3, 1, where uh, the angel of the Lord is described as the messenger of the covenant, and it's a predictive prophecy about Jesus. Uh, Another one would be the angel of Yahweh is described as someone who can forgive sins. The angel of Yahweh claimed to be God in Genesis 31 and Exodus 3, so the burning bush. Right, the burning bush and uh, is an uh, angel of the Lord there. And the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh, at the same time, when we talk about this, they're distinct persons. So when you go to some of these passages that I listed, the angel of Yahweh is usually sometimes talking to Yahweh, like talking to each other. So just a Trinitarian, right? So the, to say the angel of Yahweh is God, it's not to, it's, it's, it's one being, three distinct persons. And you see that in the Old Testament as well. So that is how, and it's a lot of things to kind of remember, but that's just like, I just want you to understand that this isn't just some random like, oh, I like this passage to be about Jesus. I think this angel of the Lord is Jesus, but not that one, because I don't like that one. No, it's like there's some, just some standard interpretational practices that we can do to, to, to come to that conclusion. So, any questions about those questions that I just answered? Okay. Yeah. And, now, and we all that in Hebrews 13, mm-hmm. where it's talking about showing how to tell those strangers. Yeah. And you might be in, it says some have entertained angels. How do you see that? So, this is a great question. So, you guys familiar with Hebrews 13, that uh, some have uh, entertained angels unaware? Um, so, the writer of Hebrews, and Hebrews is a sermon... I believe it's a sermon that was recorded. So in that sermon, the, the preacher is exhorting, and I think it's Paul's sermon, just, uh, but, uh, um, he's exhorting people to be hospitable. And he uses an example of how people, and I believe he's going thinking back to the Old Testament, probably like Abraham in Genesis 18, where he's saying some people entertain angels and they didn't even know it. Like I don't think Abraham, when those guys left, was like, "Whoa, those are all angels." He didn't, and there's so many other instances. But um, his point isn't to motivate you to be hospitable because you might have an angel in your presence. His point is saying you don't discount the how um, big of an impact your hospi- hospitality can have. Look at this example in the Old Testament. Is kind of what his point is. So don't be motivated for hospitality because it might be an angel. It's just saying, like, man, look at how profound hospitality has been. Here's an illustration. Be hospitable. Be loving. So, yeah. So don't. <laughs> if you have somebody from church over and you're blessing them, be like, is this an angel? I don't know. <laughs> it's just Tyson. It's just, it's. just All right. Yeah, that's a good question. Anything else? Any other questions about that? Um, So Kyle did a really good job uh, just kind of talking through um, and emphasizing that angels are created beings and not meant to be receiving worship at all. Um, But it's important to understand... Uh, their role and what God created them for. So if you're in your handout, turn to, I think it's page three, uh, you'll see the heading letter C, as in cat, uh, the ministry of angels. I just want to talk real quick about what it is they do. Some of their different roles. So Angels, first of all, continually praise and glorify God. We see a couple passages, like Job 38, 7, when the morning stars, which is one of um, a few different uh, ways of calling or describing angels, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So he's describing creation account. And at the beginning of creation, the angels started to worship and sing. So not all the time when angels get together in front of, People do they sing? So, like in Luke chapter 2, when they appeared to the shepherds, they weren't singing, they were shouting. But here it says they sang. So they do sing. Psalm 103, verse 20 Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obey the voice of his word. So they both bless his name, they praise him, but they also perform his word, obeying his voice, doing whatever he wants. They're his, they're his ministerial servants. Uh, uh, Revelation seven eleven. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Now, just real quick, I'm not sure if Kyle talked about this. The the recording wasn't uploaded, and I had to scoot out of class early. But uh, uh, the living creatures are the same as cherubim. Cherubim were living creatures. Seraphim are also living creatures, and they're angels. So if you're reading through Revelation, you're like, what are all these different things? Or if you're reading through Ezekiel, and you're seeing like, what, what is this, wheels with eyes and all this crazy stuff? Well, you read a little further along, and you get to Ezekiel chapter 10, it says they're cherubim. It's a very symbolic description of them, right? And if you remember Ezekiel chapter 1, got all these wheels within wheels and eyeballs all over the place. You're just like, what is this? It's nice that the Bible, if you just keep reading, that's usually the key to reading symbolic uh, literature in the Bible is God wants us to know what it is. So if you keep reading, usually he'll say, this is what it is. So, like, if you're reading in like Daniel chapter nine and it's talking about all these beasts with different, you're like, "What is this?" Well, if you usually keep reading, it says it's this Medo, Medo-Persian Empire. It's oh, it's it's Greece. Or, you know, it's like, it's just nice. So, you keep reading in Ezekiel, and it's like they're cherubim. Oh, cool. And so, there's a lot of. Dis- why do I say that? Because you go to these passages, you read their descriptions. They're, they're similar in our links. So, living creatures, cherubim, seraphim, they're all angelic angels. Uh, The second ministry of angels, angels, um, and I would change the sense a little bit just to say past tense. Angels revealed and communicated God's messages, message to humans. And I say past tense because That's not the way God operates right now. So talking about like the age of the prophets the Old Testament and the apostolic era in the New Testament. Acts 8, 26, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert uh, road. Hebrews 2, 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Okay, so we see it again the some of the ministry of the angels there. Uh, number three, angels minister to believers. Okay, so first uh, Kings nineteen seven says the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Okay, that, that's uh, Elijah, um, and if you remember the context of that, uh, Elijah had just finished his like Mount Carmel experience with the prophets of Baal. Like God brought down fire in the middle of the night and consumed the sacrifice, and then Elijah was like, all right, guys, rise up and wa- worship Yahweh, because he's the one true God, and go slay those 450 prophets of Baal. And it was like, yes, a uh, spiritual mountaintop experience. But then Jezebel after that was like, God do so more to me if I don't kill you by tomorrow kind of thing. And he was, and Elijah's ran, ran away, like literally ran a really long distance. He was super scared, super tired. And then he sits down and he starts complaining to God and woe is me. And you know what? God is so kind because Elijah's like, I just want to die, but it's wrong to commit suicide. So God just kill me, please. And God says, go to sleep. You're tired. So he puts him to sleep. And then when he wakes up, he says, here, here's some food. Eat. And it always reminds me of the Snickers commercial. It's like, you're not you when you're hungry. You know? Like, so it's like, it's what there's some really profound theology here when you think about kind of like biblical counseling and stuff like that, that it's a reminder that man is not just a spiritual being, but a spirit and physical being. So God is addressing some of the physical issues going on in Elijah's life and through the angels providing food for him to eat, eat your food, get some sleep, and then we're going to talk about the spiritual um, knots that you're tied in right now. Because you're not thinking straight. But it's hard to think straight when you're hungry and tired after running several miles away. So I just think that's a really always a neat passage. Uh, Acts 5.19, But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, and that's all you need of that verse. Um, there's, a, there's a couple other ways angels minister to believers, and the Bible's not always super um, explicit uh, in how they do this, but it's, it's still something that's important to know. Um, I think I remember somebody mentioning asking about guardian angels um, or guardian angel and asking whether or not we have one. I don't think there's any necessarily strong biblical evidence to say you have a singular guardian angel, like one just assigned to you all the time. And uh, some of the text people will kind of go to is like Acts 12.15, where uh, Peter's in prison, and when he is released... He goes to the house and Rhoda, the servant, comes to the door and she's like, oh, uh, Peter's angel is here. And so he's like, oh, like they know about some personal angel he has. So there's a lot of different ways to interpret that passage. And so it's not a very strong one to base a doctrine off of. Matthew 18.10 is is the main verse usually people go to where where Jesus is talking about the little children and comparing them to believers and saying that they have uh, angels that minister to them. And so, I, th- I do believe angels minister to us, but whether we or not we have a singular one that's assigned to us, I just don't think there's strong uh, biblical evidence. Hebrews chapter 1, 14 is actually probably the strongest passage that talks about uh, the ministry of angels to believers. And it says in chapter 1, verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So you have a, you know, in the context, you have a passage talking about how Jesus is far better than angels, but that it says there angels are just spirits that are sent out to minister to Christians. So yes, it is true that we have guardian angels, um, but I do not know about any particular one that is assigned to me based on Scripture. Um. And then the question that remains how do they minister to us? This scripture doesn't really delineate it, doesn't really specify, doesn't really say much uh, there. So, uh, only left to. Uh, conjecture and that's always kind of some dangerous territory but suffice it to say it's just something to marvel at and worship God for um, knowing that angels are help helping us so we see some examples in scripture of how they helped um, but we always have to just be careful not to take what is described in the Bible and prescribe it so especially like the book of Acts that's a very tempting thing to do you see something happen in the book of Acts and you think it's normal Uh, So you have to be very careful when you read the book of Acts and not say, well, this is normative, this happens all the time today too. Well, That's not the point of the book of Acts. Acts is describing things that happened, not saying that this is what has to happen or does happen all the time. So just an, an interpretation caution there. Okay, uh, number four, uh, the ministry of angels. Angels execute judgment on the enemies of God. Second Kings 19.35, Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. Okay, swift judgment. And just to tell you just the power of an angel, right? Just like one can strike 185,000 dead. That's crazy. It makes it even more crazy when you remember Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, "I can summon a legion of angels." Uh, you know, at the snap of a finger, it's like that is a lot of angels. That'd be some big overkill, right? Um, Acts 12:23. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God glory. This is uh, King Herod, and he was eaten by worms and died. Uh, A couple other verses that are good reminder of what how the angels execute judgment is that they prevent demons from defeating God's purposes. You can look at Daniel chapter ten through eleven to see that. Um, They defeat demons in the mid tribulation, as uh, that's Revelation chapter twelve, and they also incarcerate Satan for the thousand years millennial reign, as seen in Revelation chapter twenty. Angels are involved in the second coming. Matthew 25: 31 says, "But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So question there uh, at the, uh, right after that verse in your handout. In light of the above, how would angels, how would the angels want to be regarded by believers? and why? How would you guys answer that? After all, you, the data we've seen. Servants of the Lord, and that's right. Yeah, just like the martyrs, we have John, Apostle John, and Revelation. When the angel's talking to him, and John falls down in fear, but he even starts to worship him. And he's like, "Get up! Don't! I'm just a servant like you. Stop it! God's watching. <laughs> just a servant, a fellow servant. Now, what else? Messenger, yep. Deliverer of the of God's news and word. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Definitely, as Kyle highlighted last week, certainly not worshipped certainly not venerated if you try to get away with even softer language like the Catholic Church does we don't worship them we we venerate the saints okay we <laughs> don't venerate them i don't worship them but we allow them to direct our hearts and minds to the one who created them and worship him so they are created beings okay well let's uh, then uh, any questions about angels before we move on Yeah. Do do angels have a will? Yes, they do. As uh, they'll be seen more as we talk about the next section, demons. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, we look through scripture and we see uh, personhood of demons and angels, right? That they have uh, personalities, they have ability to act uh, upon a will to choose to obey or not to obey, right? We see that. So we'll see that more when we talk about the demons, but. Yep, they have. uh, They rejoice, right? When in Luke was it? Luke fifteen, the parable of uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin. It talks about how heaven is rejoicing when one sinner repents. Like angels are are rejoicing, like super excited, having a party in heaven. Like I always think about that when we have baptisms. Like angels are like, yes. Like, it's gotta be awesome. Like, that, that t- speaks of like a desire, right? Uh, as a first Peter talks about how the, the, the mystery of the gospel and stuff is things that angels longed to look into and see. Like, I said, these desires and longings to see things that God has not revealed to them. So they've been watching history unfold, much like we have. And with anticipation, they're like, Oh, what's gonna happen? What are you doing, God? Whoa! This isn't bit. Right? I had no idea, right? That's, that's, that's angels are like that. It's pretty cool. They're not just these like robots, I guess. Yeah. I wasn't here last week and maybe this was addressed. Um, what When were angels created? Yeah, good question. Um, so Genesis uh, again, this would be one where we have to be careful because Scripture doesn't like give us like super specific details. But you look at Genesis one, uh, Colossians chapter one sixteen. Um, God created them when He created the heavens, right? So in Genesis one, God created the heavens and the earth. So when did He create the heavens, like the spiritual realm, the authorities and rulers and all that kind of stuff? Some point it doesn't, you know, tell us in the in the, the seven days of creation doesn't specify. Well, he created a land and then an angel. No, it's just, it's just I don't know. In that moment of Genesis one, they were there. Okay. I have a question. I don't know it is, uh, When in
1: Job first, mm-hmm. the first chapter, and they, they, the sons of God. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Do you have any
1: idea who these sons of God are? Yeah,
0: angels. So, context is always key because, like I said, sons of God can refer to um, rulers, like human rulers, and that's we see that in the Psalms. Um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses love to uh, uh, ignore context and abuse some of those passages and to equate angels to gods, like, you know, those kinds of anyways. Anyways. Um, uh, they can refer to that. They can refer to uh, godly people. The sons of God can refer to just godly humans, as there's certain contexts where that happens. And they can refer to angels. So context is king in identifying. Do you have a question, Rodney? Yeah, just to follow up on the free will part. Uh-huh. And if we go to get into this in the demon part, just. Sure. A bit, but um, so I understand the original fall of the angels, right? The yep. free will there. But if angels have a free will, are they still rebelling today? If not, then why? That's a good question. Can they? <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that. Okay, good. So, any other questions about angels? If you think of something later, it's okay to to you know throw your hand up at some point and ask. So, when it comes to demons and Satan, you really can divide them and talk about them individually. But we'll, we'll just kind of talk about them mixed up a little bit. And if it gets confusing, just let me know. But um, what does the world think about and view demons and Satan? You know, what, how, do this, how how is Satan portrayed? We'll just start with him. Yeah, yeah, the think of like the cartoon looney tunes style cartoon, the red red character with horns and a tail and a pitchfork usually, right? Yeah, and where's he usually portrayed as living? In hell. In hell, right? He's kind of like the ruler of hell and he's sitting down there. You know, like actively tormenting people as if it's that he's already there and it's his domain. So, so a lot of bad theology in that. Hey, what else? I think I I hear a lot um, that we give him way too much power. Mm -hmm. Because he's not um, Mm -hmm. omni potent. Like God, right? But it seems to think that we we, we act like he Yeah, so we tend to give him too much power. Tend to overemphasize certain things. We'll certainly talk about that. We were definitely going to strive for biblical balance. Or use it for blame for yes, we will definitely talk about that. <laughs> devil made me do it, right? Yeah, yeah Gabe. I feel like anytime Hollywood tries to give him a the human form, he's like a real kind of a cool and very cold and kind of a. Even though they might show him very abstract and kind a of figure. Yep. Sunglasses, more black trench coat. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yep. But in truth, he can be very beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a deceiver, as we'll talk about. So you know, he's not. Um, you know, if he, if he is revealing himself in a human form, he's probably not showing up like a red horned, forked. Tail kind of thing, you know. He's the I'm the devil. Like it's, it's some scary thing. Yeah, he's a he's a deceiver. So he's um. But uh, what else? Demons. How how are they portrayed? I think people refer to the term demons a lot when they talk about people who are struggling with addictions or. Or, you know, mm. Yeah, inner demons, right yeah, kind of thing. Like yeah. You got an inner demon that you mm-hmm. Over, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of personify our troubles as some outside force working in, inside us. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, uh, the scary movie genre um, has a lot of impact on how people think about demons. I think about maybe they're sometimes thought of as like maybe the uh, the a ghost or the return of some dead person, but an evil person, right, that haunts you, or something like that, or some just nasty, gross, scary creature. I don't know, that's kind of how uh, they're often personified. Um, But uh, it's important to look at what scripture has to say about them, and to not allow experience to dictate what is truth, um, but to allow Scripture to be the filter that we process everything through. It is the ultimate authority. Um, So the origin of demons, this uh, is uh, Roman numeral number three, as we're talking about, uh, subheading A. Demons are evil angels who were created at the time as the angels in Genesis 1-1, but subsequently rebelled. So, I uh, want a key verse would be like 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So there you have God talking about angels who sinned, who made a choice, right, to disobey, to rebel, and God cast them into hell. Now, not all demons are in hell locked away. So there are some that have been allowed to roam free um, and are still out there and out and about doing their work. Um, another key passage would be just to like, okay, well, Tyson, how do you come to the conclusion that angels are demons? Because 2 Peter chapter 2.4 didn't say that. Uh, Matthew 25.41 would be another good passage. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus talking about the final judgment. He says this, uh, Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So there you see a close association with Satan, the devil, and his angels. You think, what, he has angels? Oh, they're the demons. The demons. Um, uh, another one would be uh, Revelation twelve three. This would be actually another good passage just for understanding the uh, kind of the, the fall of those angels. Revelation chapter twelve verse three is looking backwards in time. In this context, you have a lot of symbolism going on. Um, you have a woman, which is represents Israel. Um, being talked about here with the 12 stars representing the nations of Israel, uh, sorry, the tribes, um, the the sons of Jacob. And in verse 3 it says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. One of the descriptions and titles kind of of Satan. Uh, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Remember, we talked with angels. Uh, when we were talking about angels, stars of heaven, is kind of referring to angels as stars is one of the ways we describe them. So he swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Okay, so you just have an early account of the fall and rebellion of angels there. How many did you guys discuss with uh, Kyle last week how many angels there are? Like, what number? What's the population? The census? Scripture talks to describes angels, whether it's in like Revelation or some other places, just being multitudes of multitudes. I mean, just like more than you know, descri- uh, John describes it more than you can count, innumerable. And so, to then take a third of that innumerable amount, there's a lot. There's a lot of, of demons, a lot. Now, obviously, they're outnumbered by God's power, but also numerically outnumbered by angels, because there's still two-thirds of the angels left that are holy angels. Um, so what's, let's talk about Satan now, right? Because Satan's the one who led this rebellion. He's the one who tempted uh, and drew a third of the angels out. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 Let's turn that real quick. Kind of talks about the uh, sin, the kind of the original sin of Satan, and talking about uh, qualifications for elders in the church. It says uh, uh, an elder cannot, should not be a uh, a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So it doesn't just say he'll be puffed up like the devil is. It says he'll be puffed up and then fall into condemnation, to judgment like the devil. So there you're kind of seeing the hint it's talking about by illustration that the devil was condemned, cast out of heaven because of pride, because he became puffed up. Now, again, there's a lot of white space in the Bible that we can't, like what, what was it exactly that he became proud about? What was, you know, is it? We don't know. It doesn't say in the text, but it is pride. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 to 15 is the account where the serpent is talking to Eve and tempting her. Um, and I think when you think serpent, you usually think snake. But just remember, at this point in the history of creation, uh, the snake did not crawl on its belly, did not slither, it had legs, so if you want to think of it as a dragon, that's okay. Uh, the Bible doesn't say dragon, but uh, it calls Satan a dragon in Revelation. But uh, it wasn't your typical snake. Okay, So it had legs. And, um, we learn from Revelation and, and also 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that the serpent was Satan. Satan was possessing this uh, serpent, this dragonish thing. So I would say, and this is just conjecture, uh, and again, you don't have a specific black and white reference to this, but it seems like Genesis 3, when he is tempting Eve, is his first outward uh, sin and rebellion against God. Um, again, again, I can't say that dogmatically, but uh, it's just the first reference we have in this, of his sin of trying to tempt Eve to disobey God. So if there was a sin before that in heaven that got him cast out, that that could be. There could be. I just, Scripture doesn't say. Um, Now it's important, uh, anybody, did anybody grow up on the King James Bible? Yeah, me too. Um, So one of the passages uh, we we think about Satan, uh, he's got a lot of different names. A lot of different descriptions, and one of those names you might have heard, and it's very popular, I think, in Hollywood movies, is Lucifer. Lucifer, and that comes from the King James version in Isaiah fourteen twelve, which most other translations just call it kind of the uh, the morning dawn or you know light. Um, the King James is is just a what we would call a transliteration of the Latin Vulgate, so Lucifer is not necessarily a proper name for. Satan. So you just, anytime you hear that in a Hollywood movie or something like that, just like, eh, that's not quite right. Just kind of like Jehovah is not a proper name for God. So if Jehovah's Witnesses try to tell you, oh, you don't actually know God's name, it's actually Jehovah. Well, that's actually just a transliteration again as well from the Latin Vulgate and a misunderstanding of the Hebrew Tetragrammaton for Yahweh. Um, so don't let them hoodwink you into that. But if you uh, on your handout, you have this long we have this long paragraph here. I'm gonna read this about Satan. Satan is literally translated adversary or accuser. Now, so in the New Testament you'll see the term devil or Satan. Devil is the word in the Greek for, or diabolos is for uh, accuser. It highlights his accusatory, his slanderous nature, and Satan would be the term for adversary. When used as a proper name, the Hebrew word so rendered has the article, the, the adversary, so like Job chapter 1, um, when describing the scene in heaven where Satan, the adversary, is talking to God. In the New Testament, it is used as interchangeable with Diabolos or the devil, and is also, and is used. Uh, more than 30 times. He's also called the dragon, the old serpent, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, the spirit that now worketh, there's some King James in there, in the children of disobedience, the distinct lord of the wilderness. He is Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. He is the constant enemy of God, of Christ, of the divine kingdom, of the followers of Christ, and of all truth, full of falsehood and all malice and uh, exciting and seducing to evil in every possible way. I think uh, one of the systematic theology books I read had uh, 29 listed different descriptions slash titles for Satan. So that's a lot. Men are said to be taken captive by him. Christians are warned against his devices and called on to resist him. Christ redeems his people from him that had the power of death, that is the devil, from Hebrews 2.14, and Satan has the power of death, but not as Lord, but simply as executioner. So that's kind of a real high altitude flyover of Satan. Um, Let's just keep going. Um, We've got time. The work of demons. Let's talk about the work of demons. So Satan and demons are all fallen angels. So there is going to be some overlap in both of their kind of uh, abilities and powers and stuff like that. So Satan was the originator of sin. His fall was evident when he solicited Eve to sin. Thus, Jesus aptly names him the father of lies. Demons do try to oppose and try to destroy every work of God. Um, If they tempted Jesus, then they know that they obviously try to tempt believers. Uh, We see, we read about the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Again, okay, that's uh, something theologically we always want to be really careful about because um, the Scripture says you can't tempt God, but at the same time Jesus was tempted in every way like us so that he could be a perfect high priest. So it's one of those tensions in the Bible where you have two truths that don't seem to mesh well, but they do. They, they, they're both true. So you can't cast a, either one of them out. Jesus' temptation was real. It wasn't fake. And at the same time, he's God. He can't be tempted. I don't, I don't know how it works. It just breaks my brain. So, uh, but, the, but both are true. Um, he disseminates lies. So John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Um... The other thing is he deceives the whole world. So Revelation 12.9 says that the great dragon was thrown, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So there you have a description of his uh, deceptive work. in the future, in the tribulation, there will also be another kind of intense level of deceit. Revelation twenty three talks about that, um, and also after the millennial kingdom, uh, a thousand year period, uh, de- the the devil will be released, and again he will go on a deception campaign again. So uh, he is uh, quite the deceiver he facilitates murder. Psalm one hundred six thirty-seven. they even sacrifice their sons and their daughters to the demons. Think about today, um, modern equivalent would be the abortion industry, where I think we're at as of this year, 64 million since records have been kept, you know, of that thing in America, uh, our modern day Holocaust in our country, 64 million babies have been aborted, murdered. Um, and that's not even counting what's going on around the rest of the world. Um, I think I read recently that abortion was again um, the leading cause of death in the world. Just heinous, it's just beyond words. Um, Satan uh, does a lot of things. He, he, we could go on for a long time. He energizes unbelievers to sin. Energizes, that's an interesting word, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 says, uh, let me back up for just the context. He says, "...you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work." That's uh, in the Greek, the word energo, we can energize uh, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So for unbelievers, Satan is at work continually working through the world and through his various schemes, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, to cause men to hate God and to disobey, not cause them, but to tempt them, and he doesn't get the blame for it, but he does get blamed for tempting. In working behind the scenes, he energizes the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. And there's a lot of uh, different powers uh, that Satan has. Um, It's it's important. I'm trying to think how much time we have. I don't want to get too far into something and leave you guys hanging. Um, Because what I want to talk about is, I'll probably save his powers for next week. Because it's important to talk about his powers and then talk about his limits. Because I don't want you to walk away from here thinking, whoa, he's got all this power, without talking about the limits that God has put on him, because then it's like, oh, well, yeah, it's powerful, but it's pretty restrained. He can't do anything apart from what God allows him to do or tells him to do. Um, So we'll say that. I want to talk about, just real quick, what Satan does to those who are saved. So we know he tempts the world. He's called the ruler of this world, energizes unbelievers to disobey but how does he interact with us, with Christians? Uh, Job chapter one verse nine through eleven, the account of, of Job's life, we see that he accuses and slanders believers in front of God. We see that in Revelation chapter twelve as well. Um, you know what? What did that accusation look like with Job? Well, he's like God was saying, "Hey, haven't you seen my righteous servant Job?" And Satan was like, "Yeah, but he only does it because you give him so much nice stuff." you he's slandering him take it away. He won't, he won't bless you. He's an accuser. Uh, he hinders ministry in Christians. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.18, Paul talking about how they were hindered by Satan from going certain places. Uh, he sows tears among Christians, so he mixes unbelievers into churches in the efforts to cause um, difficulties. To create division and conflict in churches, which is why you know it's it's one thing for churches as Christians to just continually work on being peacemakers, reconciling with each other, fighting for harmonious unity just with our with each other. But how much and so we need to be good at it just for that reason. We need to be practiced at it. But how much more so because Satan puts tears in the church who do not want to do those things and can create conflict and division. And so we know why things like church discipline is such an important thing for maintaining the purity of the church. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the schemes of the devil and how to resist those schemes. Because Ephesians chapter 6 tells us we should be aware of the schemes of the devil and put on the armor of God. So there's a degree of knowledge God wants us to have about Satan and the demons so that we can grow in our sanctification individually and as a church. What else does he do to believers? He incites persecution against them. We see that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. So when we look at, if you get the like, Voice of the Martyrs magazine, or if you anywhere you get news about persecutions that are going on, whether it's in Nigeria, or South Africa, anywhere um, in the world, North Korea, and so on and so forth, any of that 1040 window, um, that's Satan that's behind those things. Generating hatred, inciting and energizing unbelievers against Christians. And we see the greatest example of that in Satan's work, to crucify Jesus, working through Judas to bring that about, right? Um, number five, uh, Satan and demons attempt to defeat Christians in general terms. We see that in, in several other passages. Try to uh, uh, to discourage unbeliev uh, to, to discourage believers to. Um, uh, hinder them, trip them up in their own growth and holiness so that they're us- uh, not useful in God's hands, so that they're, um, they profane God's name, they dishonor God, don't glorify Him, you know, any of these things to just trip up believers, um, and then use that maliciously to further, uh, harden the hearts of unbelievers and, uh, dishonor God in the world. So, for example, You look. We could go through a huge list, but you guys are aware of pastors, um, both small churches and big churches, who where the pastor has um, been caught in some terrible sin, and how much dishonor that brings to not just the ministry in that church, but all around the world. Think like a Ravi Zacharias, huge international ministry. And God used him in some mighty ways. I mean, there's some genuine, everything he, a lot of the things he said was good and right and true. But what an asterisk it puts on his life and the legacy of his ministry. When it comes out after, right right before he died, he was getting accused of sexual perversion and sins. And then after he died, more evidence of it came out. Um, and just tarnished. You know, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9 about running the race in such a way that you're not disqualified. And he's not talking about being disqualified from salvation. He's talking about his ministry being ruined and tarnished because when you have a pastor or someone in leadership like that uh, flame out and commit sins like that, it puts an asterisk next to their ministry. No matter how truthful the things they say, it just leaves is just a terrible stain and, and a taste in the mouths of the believers, at least confusion and then the rest of the world, especially unbelievers look at that and go yeah that's Christianity ha, no thanks. Like Satan has a heyday with that stuff. He is that's how Satan tries to attempt to defeat. It's not that Satan tries to get Christians to lose their salvation because as we'll talk about he, that can't happen. And the last thing he does is he tempts them to sin specifically. So we can see passages like, uh, I think, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. It says that Satan put it into their heart to lie. All right, so we see some examples where Satan does that. So we are uh, out of time. Uh, we will pick up uh, next week talking about Satan's powers, limitations, and his schemes Um, so that we can be aware of what those exact ways are. Because it's one thing to talk about, well, Satan has power to do this, this, and this. But how does he actually do it? Like, what's the outworking of his his authority over the government? Uh, you know, he's a liar. Okay. Well, what does Satan do with his lies? How does he do? How does he lie to us and the world, and uh, so we can be aware of his schemes and uh, be able to put on the armor of God and resistance? Because this is what the point of talking about some of these things is. Is you know, theology is supposed to lead to doxology, praise, and orthopraxy, or living your life differently in light of the knowledge you have. This is not an exercise just of mental prowess so that you guys can walk out and be like, yeah, I know some finer details. I'm like a connoisseur of theology. That's not what we want to happen here. We want it just to go away with a greater view of who God is and what he has done, and uh, that leads to wisdom and application in your life. So I always, think about Romans chapter 11. Um, at the end of Romans chapter 11, after talking about 10 chapters of intense, rich gospel theology, uh, Paul's circuit breakers explode. His breaker panel just flips in worship of God, because he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then chapters 12 through 16 is the application of all that theology. And so we want that to be the same tone and tenor here in this class. It's like we learn about these things, but I don't want you to just be like, okay, yeah, I know some facts about demons now, and I can tell you about where, where they started and why, who they are and angels. But what does that have to do with your life? I mean, why does God want us to know about it in the Bible? Yes, we want to be accurate, but why? Why? And there's a lot of garbage out there in the world that has already kind of you know stuck in our minds. You know, with like I don't know Kyle's talking about like the angel and the demon on your shoulder. Like eh, you should sin. No, don't do it. Kind of thing. It's like, well, is that really what happens? No. So we want to be informed by scriptures, and so we can rebuff those kinds of ideas, or just chuckle at them. I guess if we see them in the movies and stuff, and just like, yeah, that's not quite right. You know, um, but, but be able to understand it accurately. And, and as uh, somebody mentioned earlier have the right emphasis or de-emphasis on things. And hopefully that'll be more clear next Sunday when we talk about this. Uh, how much credence, how much attention, how much energy should we give to, to Satan and demons? And how much, how little should we give? Because it'd be wrong to ignore it to see the abuses of the theology in movies and in the world and be like, that's just dumb that I'm not, I'm not going to give any time of day to that. That's just supernatural, you know, voodoo. That's wrong. But we don't want to give it too much either, where it's like all we ever think about. And we find Satan under every bush and rock out there. And, you know, the devil made me do it kind of thinking. So we're going to find that biblical balance, hopefully next Sunday and uh, walk out with some more greater application. So, Thanks everybody, you're dismissed.